The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. The day of the Lord is near. Therefore, gather together, seek the Lord. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord together and wait on Him. Wait for Me, declares the Lord, because it is My intention to put an end to all evil, and it is My intention to create something new. To make a Jerusalem that is unlike any Jerusalem there ever was, filled with men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, gathering from as far as ancient Ethiopia, coming up the rivers of life to the presence of God and giving Him worship. On that day, declares the Lord, when I deal with sin, as far as the east is from the west, when I address that sin, pouring all of my wrath, Upon my son, on that day, I will make something new. I will give pure speech across the world. And people will will be able to call upon me with all of their heart and with all of their soul, finding in me all the help that they need. I will make of them a united people, and they will be priests to me offering worship. I will clean out all the rebels from the community so that the community, my community, made up of men and women from every tongue and tribe, in that community, there will only be purity. Those who have been ransomed. Those who are humble and not proud. Sing for joy because indeed I have removed all of your evil. I have taken away the judgments. You don't need to fear anymore. And now we come to verse 16 of chapter 3. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That is our God. A mighty warrior who is committed to save completely in every way. The charge to wait for the Lord, followed by two reasons to wait for the Lord. The ultimate motivation to wait for the Lord is that He will save completely. And when He saves completely, He will satisfy wholly. The promise that the Lord will bring consummate salvation. So last week, we began this final unit and we saw the timing in verse 16. On that day, that day is the day of the Lord, which I've argued already came and is still to come. 
It already came in the person of Jesus when He went to the cross on our behalf. The future judgment day of God's wrath and all the fire and fury that He has against evil was poured against His Son on behalf of those who are in Jesus. But for those who are not in Jesus, who do not have Him as their refuge, all that fiery wrath still awaits and will be poured out at the end of the age. Now what we're told is that on that day... The day that began in verse 8, wait for me for the day when I rise up. Wait for me. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep trusting in me. Persevere in your faith. Because, know this, I intend to put an end to evil. And know this, I intend to do a new work. So this is Zephaniah talking way before Jesus comes. 622 B.C., calling the remnant of Judah in a sea of injustice to wait for the all-just God who will bring morning out of the darkness. That's what it said in verse 5 of chapter 3. He is a God who morning after morning works justice. He always overcomes the wicked ones who work in the evening like wolves. Verse 3 of chapter 3. Those working in darkness are going to be overcome by the light. And when that light dawns, and 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 tells us the light is already shining, the darkness is passing away. When that light dawns, God will work justice on behalf of those that He has saved. It won't be a people who are proud and self-reliant. It will be a people who have recognized their sinfulness and have cried out in desperate need for their mighty Savior. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, don't fear. Now verse 15 ended with that similar cry, you shall never again fear evil. Now one of the intriguing elements is that the word for don't at the end of verse 15, is different than the word for don't at the beginning of verse 16. The word for don't in verse 15 is a word for never. The word for don't in verse 16 is an immediate don't. So it's the difference of you shall never commit adultery and me talking to my five-year-old, don't run out in the road. I wouldn't say never run out into the road to my... I don't have a five-year-old. I have a six-year-old. I wouldn't say never run out into the road to my six-year-old because there might be some time in the future where that might be absolutely necessary. Indeed, even with me, that might be okay. In Hebrew, they actually distinguish the immediate don'ts from the um, lasting don'ts. And one of the elements that I noted for all of you last week is that the day of the Lord has begun in verse 16. On that day, when the day of the Lord comes, it will be said, don't fear right now. Don't fear. And there are still things, according to verses 16 through 17, that have to be done. Even though the day of the Lord has come, it doesn't come all at once. 
If you have a 24-hour clock, it's somewhere at the beginning of those 24 hours and not the end of those 24 hours. Indeed, the day of the Lord, as it's portrayed in Scripture, is never going to end. The 24-hour clock is never going to come to an end. This is the culminating day of the Lord. We have arrived at, this is what Jesus starts when He comes. He starts the eternal rest of God. Creation was in six days. On the seventh day, God rested. Everything in the world was at peace with God, and God was at peace with His world. And then the fall, the sin came in, and it disrupted things. God was still sovereign, but the world was not at peace with Him. And all the rest of salvation history is about God bringing things back in order to reestablish Sabbath. To make things right. This was the goal of Israel. This is why the Sabbath was their sign of the covenant. It was a, they lived six days, and then the seventh day was a reminder, this is our goal. This is where we're headed. Because through Israel, the world was to be blessed. And Jesus represents Israel as their king. And he brings forth the blessing that was promised to come through them. On a global scale, Jesus is reestablishing peace with God right now. Jesus is on the throne right now, and those who come to him can find rest inaugurated. Rest already started. We can find ourselves reconciled with God. And now we are here and have the opportunity to proclaim terms of peace to people at the far reaches of the globe. Because the great day of the Lord is still to come for those who are not in Jesus. And yet He puts us here, called the church, to proclaim terms of peace. Before the King arrives, before that ultimate day comes, when, the, when finally day arrives and day will never end again, there will be no more night, and that day will continue on for eternity. When that day comes for you, Will you be ready? We're told right here, on that day, it will be said. And I said last week, the day is today. If Jesus' death was indeed part of what Zephaniah envisioned, of God's wrath, fiery wrath, being poured out upon every nation of the world, Jesus bearing that fiery wrath, it pouring down on his back, all the while him sitting there looking down into our eyes as those that he's saved and protecting from the fiery wrath of God. If indeed that day has started, and if indeed verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3, the change of speech and calling upon the name of the Lord and intense unity and people from as far as ancient Ethiopia gathering to Jesus, if indeed Pentecost and the Ethiopian eunuchs coming to salvation is the fulfillment of Zephaniah chapter 3, 9 and 10, then when it says, on that day it will be said to Jerusalem, and at Jerusalem, according to verses 9 and 10, At the presence of God has been gathered people from every tongue and tribe already. And that's exactly what Jesus said when he rose from the grave. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of every tongue and tribe. And let them meet me because I am the temple. And when you gather to me, you become the temple of the living God. 
You gain a new birth certificate so that God now says, according to Psalm 87, this one, oh, you might have thought he was born in Uganda. You might have thought he was born in Germany. You might have thought he was born in Japan. But no, this one was born there. Where's there? The new Jerusalem that is above. That Jerusalem, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, has become our mother. Hebrews chapter 12 says, it's to that Jerusalem that you and I, if we are in Jesus, have already gathered. We have gathered there. And now, all of us, with new birth certificates, new identities, are waiting for the day to be completed. For the day to be completed when that heavenly Jerusalem, wherein is our citizenship, comes to earth. the new heavens and the new earth, completed. But Paul would say, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's already been inaugurated. It's already started. So when it says, on that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, don't fear right now. What it suggests is that even though the day has started, it's already inaugurated in Zephaniah's mind, within that period of the day, there is going to be times where You have something to fear. At least you think you do. And so for the immediate, already but not yet reality, which is exactly what I think Zephaniah is envisioning in verses 16 and following. He's envisioning the day having started, and yet until the day is complete, we still have enemies. God hasn't taken everything away, yet He has done something. And in that day, we need to know not fear. Who's he talking to? Well, it says, It will be said on that day to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. And I said last week, I I made the case, and I've already reminded us today, this Jerusalem is a transformed Jerusalem, made up not simply of ethnic Jews who've who've made it through the fire, who've been protected from God's wrath, but it includes those in verses 9 and 10 who have gathered to the presence of God to offer to give offerings to Him. People from as far as ancient Ethiopia. Meaning, their representative, Cush is representative of the nations being gathered in. And that is what Jerusalem is. The Jerusalem that Zephaniah ends and envisions his, ends his book envisioning is a Jerusalem that's made up of restored ethnic Jews and restored and, and Gentiles who were once dispersed at the Tower of Babel, have now seen their lips transformed. The daughter of those who were once dispersed has now returned, and she's been redeemed. And that includes us. So as we read these words, be thinking about, I think he's talking about what was to happen today. He was envisioning that once the day of the Lord was inaugurated, once it was started, A voice would go out to the church. A voice like I'm giving right now this morning to say, don't fear. As dark as it gets, as chaotic as our own country gets, as hard as work might be or as deep of darkness enters into your own home, don't fear. Don't fear. I think that's exactly what 
Zephaniah is envisioning. That there would be those at the end of the age who would rise up and give hope to a people who are living after the day of the Lord has started and yet the day of the Lord hasn't ended. Don't fear and let not your hands grow weak. That's as far as we got last week. And the question is, why? Why do we not fear or lose hope? The reason not to fear is given now in verses 17 and 18. The reason is stated right up front. Why don't you need to fear? Because the God of heaven and earth, who has famished all the gods of the earth, who already has at the cross disarmed every ruler and every authority, The very God who is greater than he who is in the world, that very God who gives to his Son all authority in heaven and on earth is with us. That's what it says right there. The Lord your God is in your midst, Jerusalem. That's why you don't need to fear. The voices around you may be very beastly. But the lion of the tribe of Judah has come, and you don't need to fear. He wants us to hear that. We don't need to fear. Because his presence is indeed with us. That's the very last word that Jesus left his disciples right at the end of the book of Matthew, just before the ascension. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Go therefore and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. To take comfort. The imagery, we've used it over and over again, but when the giants of pain and the giants of sickness and the giants of of hurt and the giants of bitterness come into our lives, all of a sudden they get so close and they're towering over us and we feel so small and, and, and we end up entering into shadow. And all we have to do is step back and recognize that this, this evil is so small compared to the sun that's creating the shadow. And the sun is with us. We don't need to fear. Look with me at the text. Right away, it gives an implication. So it says, The Lord your God is in your midst. Now the ESV has a mighty one who will save. As if it's describing the previous sentence. But literally, I mean, it's a full verb. A mighty one, he will save. It's a full sentence. So the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one, a warrior. He will save. So if he's in your midst, there's some kind of a confidence that this is supposed to give. A confidence that he will save completely. In this already but not yet sphere where the ages are still overlapping. The day of the Lord has started, but the old age of darkness is still lingering. In that overlap, the very presence of our God with us 
gives us confidence. Because He's God, we know He's a mighty warrior. The very presence of that God with us is supposed to give us confidence that He will indeed complete what He has started. He's begun the work and He will be faithful to the end. A mighty one, He will save. Not only will He deliver, but get this. Three things that God will do with respect to joy, and they parallel the three things that were already celebrated in verse 14. So in verse 14, Zephaniah just breaks in, sing aloud, shout, rejoice and exult with all your heart. And now what we hear is God. Melody line for melody line, matching those three calls to joy. God is, this is what we read in verse 17, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet with His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is the only spot in the Bible where we're told that God sings over the saved. It just jumps off the page. That we have a Savior who delights in us. The psalmist ends the, ends the book of Psalms saying something very comparably. For example, Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man, but Yahweh takes pleasure in those who fear him. What makes God happy? Have you ever thought of that? What makes God happy? Would you ever put your name into that? I make God happy. Here's Zephaniah. God will rejoice over you, John. God will exult over you, Julie. You're the ones he's saving. He takes pleasure in you. That's our God. It just blows me away. As sinful as I am, as broken and as, as often as I seem to, how, how prone I am still to wander, that in light of what Christ has done, God is going to look down through Jesus and rejoice. He's going to rejoice over you with gladness. All the tensions of your heart, He will quiet with His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Here's Psalm 149, verses 3 and 4. Let them praise His name with dancing, making melody to Him with tambourine and lyre. Why? For Yahweh takes pleasure in His people. Singing and shouting because God takes pleasure in me. God takes pleasure in you. 
An antidote to despondency. There it is. That God actually, He loves me. He treasures me. He takes pleasure in me. He will sing over me. That is our God. Turn with me to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, right at the end of the book. We read something very similar. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad, you who I am working in. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. Notice the the link there between new heavens and the new earth. Jerusalem. They're identified now. They're, They're identical now at the end of Isaiah. This is the fifth of the mountaintop texts in Isaiah. Just punch it in. Mountain. Shows up five times in five different areas. And as you move, in the beginning, the mountain is just Jerusalem. By the end of the book, the mountain is both Jerusalem and all the earth. Because on the top of the mountain was the temple. And in the temple was the Holy of Holies. That was the mountain of the Lord. And now, there is no temple. Because the Holy of Holies has become everything. Everything is the mountain. So we keep reading. Behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. Now just look a few verses later. Verse 25 In that day the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Should remind you of Genesis chapter 3. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. This is the culminating image, and yet that image of the lion laying down with the lamb, the wolf grazing with the lamb, the lion eating straw, that's directly right out of... Isaiah chapter 11, that's describing what it will be like when the shoot of Jesse, the ultimate son of David, rises as king. This is a picture of the age of the Messiah that's already inaugurated, already started, and yet not fully complete. New heavens, new earth, already, but not yet. All centered on Jesus. And at the culmination of the ages, God rejoicing in His people. It's amazing. Now, turn back to Zephaniah. Verse 18. Verse 18 gives proof, I believe, 
that God will do all the salvation and God will do all the celebrating that He just promised. What's the proof? Show me. How can I be certain? As I live in this already but not yet age, I'm hearing you're telling me don't fear because God's in my midst. But is there any certainty, anything extra you can give me? Yes, there is. Now verse 18, if you've got your Bible open, you see an interesting footnote. It always is encouraging as you're a reader of the English Bible when you read things like this. Footnote number one, verse 18. The meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. Great! So, that leaves Daroshi the opportunity to share with you what I think it's saying. Now, I think I can leave the ESV mostly as it stands, but there's one thing that the ESV did that I just I don't think is helpful. And that is it took a past tense verb and made it future. And when you make the future verb into past time, it changes everything and I think finally gives clarity to what Zephaniah is doing. What the ESV translators did is they recognized all this is about the future, right? And so it just feels like it's supposed to be a future and I can't explain why it's past tense. I have gathered instead of I will gather. Well, let me explain what I think is happening. Look back in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up, and I said, as witness. For my decision is to do something on that day of the Lord. What's he going to do? He's going to assemble the nations and gather. Assemble the kingdoms, gather the nations. That is the exact same word that we're reading now in verse 18. On that day, I will do this. I will gather the nations and assemble the kingdoms and pour out upon them my wrath. Now look at verse 9. On that same day, I want, you to, I want you to wait for me now because... Wait for the day when I rise up because it's not only my decision on that day to gather nations for punishment, it is my decision... To take all those who were once dispersed and bring them back to me. He doesn't use the word gather here, but you can see it in the concept. Verse 9, At that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones will bring my offering. Once pushed out at the Tower of Babel, now a far distant descendant of those who were pushed out at the Tower of Babel with multiple tongues, a descendant will be gathered in. They will indeed bring to the very presence of God an offering. I think the gathering that verse 18 is talking about is that gathering. That the gathering is not simply a gathering for punishment, it's also a gathering for restoration. As the New Testament talks about, when Jesus returns, He will gather in all that has been planted, and in that moment, He will separate the, sheet, the, the tares from the wheat. It's a single ingathering. 
an ingathering for judgment. Judgment in the sense of evaluation. And then he will sift out the wheat from the tares. He will separate the sheep from the goats. One gathering. So when it says, I should have put my translation on here. Very, this is how I word it. Um, those suffering from the festival, I have gathered the festival or the appointed time, but a festival, you'll recall that all the gathering language, we saw it way back in verse one, verse 2 of chapter 1, where the ESV translates it, sweep away, and I just said this is, the same, this is the same verb that we're seeing right here, to gather, to gather. And God's declaring, I will gather in. And I noted way back then that the gathering related to a harvest. And that the great feast of ingathering, the feast of tabernacles, may indeed be when Zephaniah preached this text because he's so focused on ingathering both for punishment and then also in-gathering for restoration. So verse 8, you'll recall, of chapter 3, uses both gather and assemble side by side to talk negatively about God's future punishment. Now look at verses 18 and 19. I'll just read it as it is in the SV right now. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors and I will gather the outcast. That word gather now in verse 19 is the word that's used translated as assemble in verse 18. What I'm seeing here is the promise of a second exodus. We see that language all throughout the prophets, and I think that's what Zephaniah is talking about. Not just a great ingathering for God to punish, but a great ingathering of redemption. You've been separated from me far too long, and now I'm going to bring you back to my presence, and it's going to happen at the same time. The same time that he punishes sin, think cross, is the very time when in that moment he is calling people from every tongue and tribe to himself to redeem and to restore. Look at these texts. Isaiah 11 is the text that I just mentioned when we were in Isaiah 65. The lion will lay down with the lamb. That's like up in verse 9. Verse 10 declares, hear it, in that day the root of Jesse, that's the image of the Messiah, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. When I raise up all the root and sprout imagery in Isaiah, is all new creation language. And it's associated with the Messiah. When I raise up my Messiah, the nations are going to inquire of Him and gather in. Then you read this. In that day, the Lord will extend His hand, extend His hand yet a second time. Hear that, second time. To recover the remnant that remains of His people. From Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, from Cush, that's Ethiopia, 
from Elam, from Shinar, Hamat, from the coastlands of the sea. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. A second exodus in gathering. Once in slavery, no longer in slavery. Well, who's going to lead this exodus? In Isaiah 49 verse 3, we learn that his name is Israel. Israel is the name of the one who will lead the exodus. He is the servant who was called Israel from the womb. And I think in Isaiah 49.3, the servant Israel is the person, Jesus, who represents the many. Now notice what it says. And now the Lord says, He who formed me, Israel, from the womb... To be his servant. Well, what's your mission? Why did God form you from the womb to be his servant? In order to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. Now, his name is Israel and his mission is to restore Israel. It's one of the clearest texts in all the Old Testament that the Jesus represents the nation. His name is Israel, and the one who is doing the work will restore Israel. So you can go back to this passage, look in verse 3, and it identifies that the one that's being, that's the me right now, has already been named Israel. So, your mission, Israel, is to bring Israel back. The mission of the man, Israel, is to bring the nation of Israel back. But it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring the preserved of Israel back. That's too small. I've got bigger plans for you. Not only are you going to restore ethnic Israel back to me, I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. One man representing the nation will be the instrument of global salvation. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. That's how Jeremiah 31, New Covenant, begins, same way. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. No, there's going to be a bigger, more better exodus. Not just salvation from physical slavery. No, when the exodus, salvation from sin and Distance from God, when that exodus happens, you'll no longer be talking about the first exodus. This one is far superior. As the Lord lives who brought up the people out of the land of Egypt, no, they won't be saying that, but they'll be saying, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Now we come to the New Testament. And you won't see this unless you look at the ESV footnote. But here we are with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus. And this is what we learn. Behold, two men were talking with him, with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And what were they talking to Jesus about? ESV, his departure. Footnote, his exodus. The Greek text, very literally, it says exodus. That's what they were talking to Jesus about. When he, representing the world, would move through 
The waters of judgment. Remember, he calls his, ba- his cross event a baptism. You'll remember that Peter calls the flood a baptism, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 calls the Red Sea a baptism. Jesus undergoes the judgment, and through that, he himself brings all those identified with him out of slavery to God. They were talking to him about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Here's Caiaphas just before Jesus dies. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also to gather, there's our verb, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered, using the exact same word as in verse 9, dispersed abroad. That's what Caiaphas proclaimed. That's what Jesus was doing. The great end times in gathering, not only of Jews, but of the nations, bringing them in, fulfilling the promises of Zephaniah. Verses 19 and 20. Oh, so let me just... So so as I read verse 18, this is what I think it's saying. Zephaniah 3... It's still a little broken English, but just word for word, this is what it would look like. Those suffering from the festival, I have gathered. They were from you a reproach. They were from her a reproach. I'm trying to remember. I don't have the Hebrew right in front of me. They were... A reproach, a burden on her. A reproach, that's how I would do it. So while people were separated from Jerusalem, unable to experience God's presence, it was a reproach to the city. But now what God says, and this is the proof that he will finish what he started, I have, past tense, gathered. So now, think about it this way. The voice rises, it's the day of the Lord. I am that voice right now. Not pretending, I think I'm one of the voices that was anticipated right here. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, don't fear, because God is in our midst. And God will, as mighty warrior, fully save all of us. And God will, as that mighty warrior, celebrate over you, Judith. Celebrate over you, Tim. Celebrate rejoicing, singing over you, Terry. He will do that. And what's the proof? That we're here today. He has gathered in a people from every tongue and tribe and nation already. And it gives us proof that He has started something and He will complete it. He's already building an international church. I think that's exactly the point. So it's not future, I will gather. No, on that future day, the proof that He will finish what He started is that He has gathered Second Exodus has already begun. Verses 19 and 20. God declares that He will save completely. 
He says that on that day, a voice will go up, and now he declares that at that time, he will save completely. Look with me at 19. Behold, it's a big word that just draws our attention to what follows. Look with me at the end, and he's he's getting ready to finish out his book. Behold, at that time. Now, the ESV doesn't put the quotation mark until the end of verse 20, but that doesn't make sense to me. I think the quotation mark ends at verse 18 because in the same way that verse 16 has on that day, it will be said, now verse 19 says, at that time, the Lord will act. I think they're talking about the same future reality. And so on that day of verse 11, on that day of verse 16, at that time of verse 19, all of them are talking about the future day of the Lord. And what will happen? At that time, this is our hope, and this is where we're living right now. This is the already and not yet realities that we're experiencing all right, right now. He will put down oppressors. Well, we've learned a lot about oppressors, right? Chapter 3, verse 1, this characterized the city. They were defiled, they were rebellious, the oppressing city. All of the leaders of Jerusalem were pushing down all those who were not leaders. They were pushing down the small, pushing down the weak. Yet God said in verse 11 on that day, chapter 3, verse 11, Jerusalem, I will not put you to shame because of the deeds by which you as a nation, as a city have rebelled, but I will remove all the proud. So the oppressors are the proud. And the church of God is not made up of proud people. It's made up of humble people. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. But changed. You cannot be part of this community unless you yourselves have experienced a deep-seated humbling. The mark of the church is that it is not dependent on itself, it's dependent on its God, on our Savior King, Jesus. It's identified as humble. Verse 15, The King of Israel is in your midst, And that king has taken away the judgments from you. What do I mean? He's cleared away your enemies. So this, at one level, is our hope. That all forms of oppression that are done against God's people will be put to an end. And we say, when will it happen? I think about Habakkuk, who's crying out in, at the same time period, How long, O Lord? How long do I, as one who's trying to follow you, have to sit in this world that's filled with filth? Injustice is abounding all around me. People are hurting others all around me. My own family's getting hurt. How long, God? How long does this have to happen? And into that world, Jesus comes and begins to save the lame. Begins to save the lame, and begins to, to gather the outcast. 
Micah chapter 4. Turn with me there. Micah chapter 4. It opens with a future promise that I think is already being fulfilled today. It shall come to pass in the latter days, Micah chapter 4, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted above the hills and people shall flow to it. If you're thinking about a heavenly Jerusalem, identified with the temple who is Jesus, then we see this happening. Peoples will flow to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways. I want to know what He has to say. I want to be surrendered to His ways. I want to follow His paths. Nations from every tribe and tongue gathering to hear from God. Verse 6, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather those who've been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. This is exactly Zephaniah chapter 3. Some of the exact same words and phrases are used. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Now, Micah doesn't only stop there. He goes on to tell us how will God reign? Or I should say, through whom? When will he reign over these nations from the new Jerusalem? Chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who will be ruler for Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth, people will account for Jesus. He shall be their peace. Sabbath rest realized. Brother John? The lame are an added element to the blind that are distinctively identified with the Messiah in the future age. He is the only one who helps the lame and who helps the blind. Throughout all of Scripture, he's the only one, and I think it's, it's that sense of absolute desperation. So the lame are representative, and and so it's not by chance then that when Jesus comes in, he doesn't take care of all the lame in his first appearing, but what we read is, John the Baptist is sitting in prison, I was expecting you to set free the captive, are you the one or not? Go back and tell John what you hear and see, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Am I the one? Yes, I am the one. But I'm not doing everything yet. So John is still in prison and he will die there. But the day will come where the salvation will be complete that was started in the work of Jesus. So I'm seeing that in Zephaniah when it says, I will save the lame and gather the outcast. 
That's exactly what Jesus starts. Indeed, the kingdom of heaven is near, he says. It's intruding in the moment of his ministry. And yet, it's not fully full-blown. But then, even as we see in the book of Acts, the Spirit of Jesus continuing its work. What he began to do is in the book of Luke. What he continues to do in the book of Acts through his church. And that's why we see it explicitly Peter, John, and Paul healing lame people. Because the kingdom of God that Zephaniah was anticipating is making its way out to the ends of the earth. Carrying on the work of Jesus that he started. Brother David. Isn't it interesting that the nature of the regenerate soul's life is called walking? Now, I've got a student who's working on a biblical theology of spiritual disability. Trying to identify how the physically disabled within our community, and the day is is not far off probably, where the church alone is the only context where we will have disabled people. It's a very sad reality. When you can identify so much in the womb, and if you know that they're going to be physically hurt, they do away with them. And where physician-assisted suicide, how far will that go? But the church is to be a place where we say, no, no. Why? Because every physical disability is a gift of God to us to remind us of our own neediness. What is so physically apparent in certain lives is desperately real in every life. And so the image of walking becomes an image of full life healing with every physical ailment overcome. And that's what is being promised. Complete restoration. I don't know what to do. I've got time up and I've got a a verse and a half to go. So I guess I will finish next week. We may get to some questions or we may not. I may do some, finish Zephaniah. Um, I mean, we're going to finish stuff, and I may finish it in a bigger way. Because the end of the book, I, I have to comment on it because I'm going, well, I have to comment on it. So, let's pray. Father God, I thank you I thank you that you can sing over sinners who've been saved. We look forward to hearing your melody ring forth. And it will only work in us deeper levels of of joy and awe because we know that you could not sing over us were it not for your Son. We thank you that we do not need to fear today. The momentary even though it can feel so long and so hard, the momentary affliction is indeed preparing for us glory 
when no more tear and no more pain will be present. We look forward to that day and we thank You that You have already shown us that You are at work. You've gathered us. You've created a people from every tongue and tribe. You've identified us with Your Son. And therefore, we have hope. Your presence is in our midst. Therefore, we have hope. We need not fear and we need not let our arms grow slack. We need not give up hope. Hold our hearts. We are so weak and desperately needy. Be our upholder, our mighty one, who will save. We look forward to the complete salvation. We celebrate that you have already begun your work. Thank you that you are with us now in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.